Listening Dog Media. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The Offside Rule. We get it with Lindsay Hooper. Hello and welcome to the Offside Rule podcast. Coming up this week, I speak to England and Arsenal ladies captain Faye White. More football topics get debated in my roundtable. Zoe Aminsky and Kate Borsay join me again. And we're talking players you can never forgive. Have a think. Plus, ITV Midland sports correspondent Steve Clamp shares the secrets to his success. All that to come, but we start with my trip to London Colney, where I met up with a lady who must have one of the biggest mantelpieces ever seen the female take on football Faye White joins me at Arsenal training ground Faye thanks very much for taking part in the podcast first of all congratulations treble winners Arsenal ladies yeah obviously it's been a fantastic season to come out on treble winners pretty good um, we've done it before in the past but this year it was so much harder so to still have those three trophies is amazing let's talk about the WSL season and the debut of it being televised um, I just wonder what you reflected on the season in terms of the competition uh, the reaction you got from people um, how have you found it um, well obviously at the start of it there was a big buzz around it and um, you know there was a lot more interest in the papers in the media certainly it was um, put across to the media in a better way and there was more fans turning up to the games which on the field is great to have more of a buzz around the games and more people interested and more interview requests and things for all teams which was good so uh, on on the field it was you know a lot more competitive and there was lots of other you know continental shot stoppers there's little festivals that clubs were putting on and trying to make it just more of an experience for fans and families to come and watch the games you know and we were pushed all the way by Birmingham um, until the last moment really so yeah it was it was I think it's been a success some games are live on telly as well and the re- regular review shows on um, ESPN have been uh, a good hit and obviously there's a lot of talk on Twitter as well um, now that I'm on it and the, most of the clubs are using that tool to get out to to give information to people to come and watch the games you've won many accolades with this club and I know that this year will be a highlight when you look back but other than this year which is of course so present I just wondered what other years stand out for you in memory and different trophies that you've managed to acquire along the way 
Um, well, like being at Arsenal, I've been very fortunate to win a lot. Um, and I think this is our sec- well, third treble that the club have won. So I think it was 2001 and maybe 2007, but don't quote me on that. I think the quadruple was 2007 that we won, and which obviously for the club, that was a massive historic time because we won the, effectively what was the Champions League then. So, yeah, so, um, you know, FA Cups, we've won it 10, 12 times. And again, I forget, and I know that sounds a bit relaxed and a bit... Like it doesn't, well, of course it matters because we're just likely to be so successful. So Now when you make these comparisons, because you, you look at the men's game, you look at La Liga and it's always Real Madrid versus Barcelona and you look at the SPL and you have that same, uh, and you could even apply that to the Premier League in, in the men's game here as well. I mean, but at the moment with you, it's just Arsenal ladies, it seems that it's win everything. I mean, Birmingham pushed you close, but do you expect there to be a bigger rival in the future? Well, you say that, but being in the game uh, is, it's always from outside looking in you only see Arsenal or yeah you see Rangers or Celtic in the you know it's a Scottish and but for us it's Everton have always pushed us Chelsea have always been close games and hard this year Birmingham um in the past previous years Birmingham was strong that when then they lost a few players and players move around and within the women game that really does affect teams but one thing that we've had here is always stability and you know we get fantastic support by the the club we're really integrated into the men's team and the club so um, you know it's that helps us but um we have had a lot of competition and i think people think oh it's just arsenal who's winning but we've always had to be on our best and 2 years ago we lost four or five players to the wps in america and that was probably our hardest season because we still won the league but it at that time in you know looking on paper Everton really should have been us because that's probably the weakest we've ever been but like I say it's, it's that knowing how to win and that winning mentality of players that were still here that um, managed to pull us through and make sure that we kept winning. Are your hopes of the WSL that you could have a league that is as high profile as what the States have and and, and the kind of attraction that they have to the game because of course it means football has been prevalent there for quite some time. I see players as well like Rachel Yankee who scored an amazing goal and you think that must be getting attention of people abroad are you confident you can hold on to your best players or that we can as a country here yeah I think so um you know we did lose a few to America but the America is very different because the women's games looked at you know they've got basketball American football baseball that are their main male sports so it's very viewed very differently out there I think the league obviously has done a lot and certainly the the American team being in the World Cup final as well has massively helped to inject the interest over there. But again, we have gradually been improving. This WSL has helped to improve the perception and also interest, you know, in people finding out about women's football, but also the, the success of the England team as well and having good campaigns in the last three major tournaments. So... And the league, we've started it at a good level where it hopefully can be sustainable, whereas America... You know, they've been going for the last few years, but there's talk of it still struggling. They get better attendances to games than we do, but, um, you know, in the two, three, four thousands, but they're still financially, it's not working. So I think it's right to pitch it at a semi-professional league this time for us um, and look to try and build it and grow it as this, as the number of people coming through the gates increases as well. So um, next season, we hope, um, you know, it'll go a bit further and can continue to, to grow. Let's talk about your role as captain as well, because not only are you captain of Arsenal ladies, you also captain England. What do you make of those roles? Is that a, a big pressure to have on your shoulders? Yeah, it's one I relish and I've loved, obviously. Um, but yeah, it's something which I look at back and go, well, how am I doing that? You know, and I think you just, obviously the, the things that your managers or your coaches see within you that 
you do without even knowing sometimes um just how you you know present yourself how you commit yourself to the game and and do the right things um but no yeah I've loved it and you know sometimes it is a bit lonely because and you're also in demand a lot of having to do you know lots of um interviews and that's something within the women's game you actually having to always push it um, within the media as well so or certainly over the years I have it's starting to get a little bit more like saying no I can't do that I can't do that because I can't you know be everywhere but no, I think it's um, you know it's a, it's been a massive honour and it's you learn it as you go. It's nothing that I would have said. Well, I know I can do it. I certainly never dreamed that I'd be England captain um, or even Arsenal captain when I was an eighteen-year-old just starting out. So uh, um, I've learned a lot along the way, and you have to be, I think, willing to always adapt and learn and listen to your teammates or people, and it's the way you come across or the way you uh, present yourself as well. So there's um, yeah, it's been <laughs> a testing but enjoyable time. Another significant event coming up next year, the London 2012 Olympics, and Hope Powell, who manages you for England, is also now going to be the coach for a Great Britain side. Is that something you're hoping to be involved with? Of course, I think anyone wants to be. Um, how it is, I'm not sure. Obviously, I'm getting older and um, currently injured at the moment. So, But no, the Olympics will be massive for the women's game. I know there's a lot of talk in the men's game. It's not really a tournament. It's not classed as a major tournament for the men's and whether the top players play in it but for women's football it's just as big as the world cup really um 2007 we actually qualified to play in the 2008 um, beijing olympics having done so well in the world cup but we couldn't compete as great britain so it was you know this time we're hosting it which means there's a gb team which you think you know to experience and you see it, other athletes in other sports what they talk about the olympic experience and you know, I just think as a, a sports person how amazing that would be. And just imagine, the, you know, the stadiums and being in this country and, you know, for the men's game, hopefully they'll be full. For the ladies, we hope as well that people will come out and support the game. But, yeah, it would, it, for us, it's just as big as the World Cup, I think. So, you know, playing against the likes of America and normally Germany, but I don't think they've qualified for this year because they didn't get do very well in the World Cup. So... Um, yeah, it's just another massive test and a great opportunity to profile the game and, again, test ourselves as an international setup um, and international team against the best teams in the world. That contrast between GB men's, GB women's is interesting one because, like you say, the, the bigger names perhaps aren't going to take part in, in the men's game. There are, there are whispers that David Beckham is trying to negotiate his next deal so that he will be part of it. But I think it's going to be a very mixed squad in terms of age and experience. And I wonder whether you think that will be the same for the women's and also the kind of cross-mix between perhaps Wales, Ireland, Northern Ireland and Scotland and, and what the mix will be like. Well, on the men's side, they, it isn't more of a, an under-23s tournament, isn't it, with over-age players with only a limited amount. So it is different because it will be more just the senior players um, and hope we'll be able to select anyone from England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland. So it will be a senior players and as well as younger players. But it's more the fact that you've got the likes of Kim Little, who obviously been one of the top Scottish players who plays in Arsenal. And you think she could get into the England team if she was English. So And, she, and Scotland have been doing so well as well. So her, Jennifer Beattie, Julie Fleeting from Scotland, there's, you know, it'd be exciting to think she hope could pick from those players as well, as well as other Welsh players that have been doing well in the WSL this season. So... 
Um, that's why it's exciting. It means it's more challenging for players as well. There's more competition. But to think what team we could put out and how strong we would be, having known you know how strong England have been over the past. But it is important that it's all represented. But again, I think it's, it's the, the best players should be picked no matter what country they're from. So Yeah, absolutely. Finally, just looking ahead, injury-wise and, and going forwards, um, what are you looking forward to next? Well, it's literally this year, it's kind of just stopping. Um, it's the, it feels like the end of the season. So it's a little bit of a break, rehab from me current injury. Yes, obviously I want to continue to play, but my body will will tell me that. But there's so many more, you know, other things, exciting things, coaching or media interest, and then WSL next year, looking at how that will grow and if there's anything extra going to come into that. As I'm trying to get more people to come and watch, um, you know, just to profile it a bit more. We're actually got a, Arsenal have got a tour to Japan at the end of um, well, end of November, beginning of December. So that's obviously them just having been world champions. A number of their international players will play um, in a game uh, that we're going to play against the top team that won their league. So I've been hearing that there's ten to seventeen to 20,000 people been going to watch their game. So it should be a massive, hopefully, as what I'm hearing from the grapevine, but um, we still have to hear all the, the logistics about that. But it would be amazing to go out to Japan as well and, and see what that's all about. We wish Faye a very speedy recovery from injury. It was great to talk to her. Now, next up, it's Lindsay's Roundtable. Producer Heather, I must stop talking in third person. Maybe we get a jingle for that one. The female take on football. It's the Offside Rule podcast and another edition of my roundtable. I'm joined again by Zoe Minsky and Kate Borsay. And we're going to debate a couple more issues this week. We know in the Football League there have already been managers let go. In the Premier League, we're yet to have our first casualty. There are names being banded around. Now, the most obvious to start with is Arsene Wenger, who is under a lot of pressure. Worst start to a season for Arsenal in their history. The last three or four years in particular, they haven't got the silverware or the expectations or nearly kind of got to the expectations of what the fans were wanting is it now time for this man to move on you can't doubt what Wenger's achieved in the past with Arsenal and you know I completely and wholeheartedly understand why he's got this core base of fans who keep harping on about that but the fact is is as you said the last three or four years it's getting worse and worse and at the moment I think something drastic has to happen before Arsenal are lost in the lower half of the Premier League table because we thought after, you know, their 8-2 thrashing and the last-minute signings, everything's going to get picked up. There hasn't been a dramatic pick-up. They've kind of not lost everything, but something has to happen. And I don't want to be the girl to sit here and say, Wenger's got to go, but... Well, I think as well, one of the turning points for him in his career perhaps is that game just recently, the North London derby, because now people are talking about Spurs as the North London team, and that would never have been the case in all of Arsenal heydays. And I think just gradually they're going down the pecking order, as Zoe says. Yeah, look, for me, Wenger's, Wenger's like my dad. He's really stubborn. He's like a stubborn old mule in the nicest possible way. And I think he needs to appreciate that since he lost his friend David Dean, who left in 2007, I think it was, he's never really been the same since. Look, it's been six or seven years. Since 2004, 2005 season, since they finished in the top four, and his win percentages have gone dramatically down from sort of 50% down to around 38% now. So the stats are against him. The players and Wenger, I mean, David Dean was a personal friend of Wenger, and when he left, it was reported that Wenger offered to hand in his resignation in support of his friend because he left 
left because of irreconcilable differences. So there was, you know, something gone on there. And he sold his shares to Red and White Holdings. And it's never been the same again since. Dean was hugely popular and Wenger had that really useful ally. He doesn't have that anymore. Someone in that club needs to be very smart, very, very clever. They need to get a pair of small and curlies out and they need to say, right, Wenger, we love what you do. Put him in charge of the youth setup. Give him a, whether it's a boardroom role or whether it's a kind of head office role, give him some sort of role that dignifies all the amazing stuff that he's done at Arsenal. Don't lose him, but respect the fact that in these times, in these footballing times, Wenger no longer cuts it. There's a famous saying, isn't there? Behind every great man is a great woman. And in this case, behind every great Arsene Wenger, there's a David Dean. And he's not there anymore. I think um, there was a lot to be said for that partnership. And I think it really was kind of joint relationship at Arsenal Football Club and maybe that is the link that he is missing. I do think that the youth development and the fact that the club is in such a healthy state is down to Wenger. There is no doubt that he develops great youth players. I can't personally forgive him for not choosing enough English players. I think he too often goes for French internationals but I suppose that's just the way and I, and I do have the utmost respect for the way that he tries to play the game but I think the Premier League maybe has just moved on a couple of notches ahead of what Wenger's capable of. Let's move on to Steve Bruce next uh, for Sunderland, who I think has been put under undue pressure and really undeservedly so. I think it's a very you know fresh start to the season. He's got so many new players that he's going to have to gel and make work together. And I think he deserves, considering he, Sunderland finished 10th last campaign and he got them up to the highest finish that they've had for some years, uh, a bit of time to bed in. I agree. You know, I think football has no memory when it comes to things like that. It's new seasons, slate clean. Who cares what we got last season if you haven't won in the first three matches then you know talks of your demise um come about but there is a side move Bruce I think you know they spent 24 and a half million pounds in the transfer window which is a lot for a club like Sunderland um they signed 11 players so a lot would have been expected you know they've got some big players you know a lot of the sort of Man U extras uh, headed over yeah headed over to Sunderland but good players nonetheless so I think more, you know, has been expected. I think that Narquin stepping down says a lot. I think that that suggests that Steve Bruce won't be going anywhere soon. I think that he's, you know, taken maybe responsibility for their lack of a flying start. But I don't know how long it'll be for Steve Bruce because he's got to start winning now because they've made a change and if that doesn't work, then he's got to be next. We're going to talk about Keane soon, but when you look at someone like Keane, who who I think has been left kind of stranded out there, and, and also several managers who don't necessarily get on with their with their chairman and aren't as supported as they could be, Steve Bruce has been incredibly supported by Sunderland. This is what he achieves by being incredibly supported. Then I am worried, and I think Zoe is absolutely right. I think Niall Quinn has taken some of the flack for that and has offered to sidestep into a bit of a bizarre role, really, an international development role and interestingly enough the club's owner Ellis Shaw has in my mind obviously said right let me take these matters into my own hands I need to look at how Steve Bruce is working and when I get an idea of how he works I'm then going to make a decision so if you're Ellis Shaw I think we should be looking at how long Ellis Shaw gives Steve Bruce to prove himself and Sunderland have had not a horrific run of results they've lost three drawn three and won one they're just so inconsistent you know they'll have a couple of draws and a loss and then they'll go and beat Stoke 
4-0. So it's the slightly bizarre set of results that are not boding well for Steve Bruce at the moment. Well, next, you have mentioned uh, Steve Keane, everyone's favourite Blackburn manager. <laughs> what do you think about his, his prospects of staying in the job? I honestly thought from day one that he wasn't Premier League in terms of stature. But you do look at people like Chris Hewton, who was an assistant who came through and then went and managed at Newcastle, who did a great job. And so you think, well, right, we'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But with him... I don't believe him. I watch post-match, um, and I think, have you watched the same game that I've just watched? And are you talking about the same players? Deluded, perhaps slightly. I think he's out of his depth, but at the same time, I think he never really stood a chance. I don't think the Blackburn faithful ever really accepted him anyway. I just find his whole appointment odd, really odd. I mean, Sam Allardyce was sacked with this bold statement of, we want a more esteemed, established, potentially international manager... Who's going to be Blackburn's next manager? Oh, step up assistant Steve Keane. I find the whole situation baffling, so I don't really actually have much to say on it other than maybe he won't go, maybe he will last season because goodness knows what the board's thinking. The board's thinking that Steve Keane is the man to give them Champions League football. Before the season began, that was what their aim was and I think to myself that that is delusional and and, and I don't think Steve Keane is deluded. I think he's been caught on the crest of a wave and what they're trying to achieve is not what they should be trying to achieve and there's no realistic angle there at all. You know, he in his past has only really been in charge of youth academies. He's We work with, with Chris Coleman a lot. He's never really held a managerial position before, unless I've not been able to find it. So he comes, unlike Chris Hewton, without really any calibre, which makes his appointment bizarre. Now, he's either very good at lip service to Indian poultry farmer people, (laughs) or they are under a weird impression of what they think or who they think might be the best person to take their club into Champions League football. And we're all laughing at Champions League football now, but it's their own silly fault for thinking that that's what they can achieve. It's just, it's bizarre. If we're going to go down the theme of delusional as well, wasn't Ronaldinho linked with Blackburn and David Beckham at some point? I just think with Steve Keane that he will be the first one to go. I imagine that they will see sense because they'll check their bank balance and they'll check where they are in the table and say, right, well, something needs to be done. I imagine that he's a much cheaper option compared to Sam Allardyce, who every time I've seen him has been in a helicopter landing somewhere to do a press conference. We've got to say when we listen to Blackburn players speak, I mean, I listen to Jason Roberts quite a lot talking on the radio and they seem like a real together bunch but they seem like they're together regardless of what the manager's doing the female take on football in the wake of the Carlos Tevez affair in the Champions League and whether he did or did not refuse to warm up and play a part in Manchester City's squad that evening when Mancini said he didn't, it will all become apparent, I'm sure, one day. Uh, it made me think about players that we can never forgive. Now, this can be in any walk of life, so you don't have to stick to the whole grumbly footballer route. Starting with Zoe, just a footballer that you can never forgive and why. Well, the footballer I can't forgive is actually Marlon King, former Watford player who I really thought had turned a corner and back in the glory days when we had our uh, Premier League campaign under the leadership of A.D. Boothroyd, I I loved him. I thought he was great. I thought he'd turn... I was like, yeah, he was a bad boy, but look at Boothroyd. He's turned him around and it's magical and he's taking Watford through. And then... Well, we all know the rest, don't we, really? He's a quite despicable human being. He's really been up to no good. 
He's gone from team to team and seems to be pretty much the most disliked man in football. And so I won't forgive him for deluding me into liking him. And now anyone that ever hears I ever liked him won't let me forget that. See, some people might be having this love affair with people like Joey Barton. He seems to have gained a bit more favour this season. And who we mentioned last week, Adebayor, who Kate really likes, myself and Zoe, not so keen. But yeah, the Marlon King, that sticky factor, you thought that he duped you in and now actually you've realised the error of your ways. Yeah, so Marlon, I don't forgive you. Okay. (laughs) Uh, Kate, yourself. I've got a few here because there are plenty of players that I can't forgive. Firstly, I can't forgive the combined couple of Phil and Julie Neville for having such appalling taste in upholstery and carpets that they'd want to get both their initials combined written on all their carpets and upholstery. That's unforgivable (laughs) in my eyes. I can't forgive Cristiano Ronaldo for his eyebrows. Stop plucking them, for God's sake. Leave them alone. As a Liverpool fan, I can't forgive Michael Thomas. I still can't get over his injury time goal in the 88-89 title race when he basically robbed Liverpool of the title after Hillsborough. Even though he helped Liverpool, you know, he signed for them and he he helped Liverpool to to the FA Cup final, I still can't forgive you, Michael Thomas, for robbing us of that title. Most of all, though, can I not forgive a whole body of people? Go for it. FIFA. I can't forgive FIFA the football's governing body, the world football's governing body, for um, for not giving us the World Cup in 2018. Blatter & Co, um, just in my eyes, absolutely stank. Something awful and corrupt happened there. Of course, I'm throwing out allegations, and I should say allegedly left, right and centre, but I don't care. Something so stinky happened that it's pretty obvious to everyone that something was not quite right. And even after FIFA ex-co members were suspended, were fired and are no longer in their positions, there wasn't any consideration as to whether the vote would want to be done again. And Andy Anson, who kind of led our bid, had it absolutely bang on. There was something really not quite right about that. And for that, I cannot forgive FIFA. Word of that sentence, stinky, I think. We're going to take four um, thanks very much for that. I've got a couple of people to mention. I could have gone down the obvious route of Joey Barton calling Cole Henry a Sunday League footballer. Oh. How dare he? Ben Foster as well for choosing not to play for England. But like Zoe's face is pulling the suggestion as well. I have to forgive him because he's so pretty. <laughs> no, no, no. I just love Ben Foster. He's He helped us through the Premier League. I won't hear a bad word against Ben Foster. <laughs> OK, well, I won't add as well that he now plays for West Bromwich Albion. But we will go on to mine and it's one of the greatest players of all time. You'd think that I would be actually singing about this man and praising him, which is what I used to do. But I'm going to have him as the player that I will never forgive. One of the greatest players of all time. He won the 1998 World Cup more or less single-handedly for France, took them to the 2000 Euros. This is a man that I changed holidays and plans to watch this man play with a football because this is how comatized I was when he was playing on the pitch. I was in awe of this player. Um, he went on to the 2006 World Cup and before the final, because he got them all the way, captained France to the final, um, he got given the Golden Ball Award. Now, this is something that I would have given him many, many times in every competition. I just thought he was the best player I'd ever seen. Then, what goes and happens? We know that Zinedine Zidane, which of course is the player I'm talking about, has just a few minutes left in his game before he retires. And in the 110th minute, he headbutts Matarazzi (laughs) in the final, headbutts him. Did he lose his senses? This is how one of the greatest players of all time bowed out of football in one of the worst ways. And for that, 
I will never forgive him. Would you forgive him, though, if Matarazzi said, well, it's because he was quite rude about me, actually? No. I actually know the details of this. He was rude about his sister. He called his sister something. Oh, but man. how many times has that happened in football? He yeah. should have just shrugged that off and just gone out on a high. Think of the things that David Beckham's had to hear about the lovely posh. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly. Uh, you know, you just have to swallow this up. Why couldn't he have ignored it? But I honestly mean this when I say this cost me thousands of pounds. I moved a holiday <laughs> once just so that I could watch France playing because I loved him that much. Well, girls, I think we've waffled on enough for today. Thanks very much for joining me. The female take on football. Every week I interview a broadcaster or someone associated with football to shed some light on how to get a highly competitive dream job. Here's this week's interview. Steve Clamp joins me, ITV Midlands sports correspondent um, and now uh, the main presenter on the show as well. I just wanted to know how you got started really in your career. Let's go right back, shall we? How long have you got? Have you got only a few days for this story? We've got a few minutes, yeah. <laughs> OK, right, OK. Let's go right back. Right, I'm at school, I'm 16, I have no idea what I want to do. Um, pretty much hopeless at all subjects, um, except music, which I enjoy. My dad was a guitarist. So I decided to go and become a sound engineer. So I went to college to study sound technology. Uh, a part of the course, you had to go and arrange a tour. And we had a little band and uh, off we went um, on a little tour of student union places, you know. But anyway, a local film crew, uh, I think, I forget where from now, I think probably from the regional news down in the south, uh, wanted to come and film us to try and do a documentary about a band trying to make it, you know, so they came with us on the tour. And uh, I don't remember much of the tour, but I remember at the end of it, the director of this documentary saying to me, have I ever thought about working in television? And and he he said, you're one of the most natural people I've ever known on camera. Uh, And that kind of in my head just went, Ping, yeah, brilliant. I'd love to do that. You know, I'd love to uh, do it. So I made some inquiries and I was told kind of journalism is the best route into television uh, if you want to do that. So I went back to college, studied media and journalism uh, for a couple of years. And while I was doing that, a guy running the, the course knew someone at Chelsea Football Club who was setting up a TV station there, very small, you know, low-key thing in, in those days. And we're looking for some cheap labour, basically. So I went up there, met them, and uh, the boss was a guy called David Utal who offered me, and a guy called Tim, who's now uh, my best friend, has been to this day since then, uh, a job. And we did everything between us, edited it, filmed it. I started to do bits of presenting. and, And that's how it all started, really. And Chelsea TV is still going strong. It's massive now compared to what it was. Um, when we did it, it was really like a college video thing and it was just broadcast within the ground. I know it's, uh, it's on satellite and whatever now. But from there, I then got a, a transfer up to MUTV. And when that first launched, I managed to convince them I was much bigger and more important than I really was. And they gave me quite a senior job there. So I had to very quickly learn on the, on the, on the job. I was a senior reporter and presenter there. And I was only, I can't remember exactly, but about 21 or 22 at the time. Uh, so it was a quick learning curve and I made mistakes and got shouted at, but I think I just about pulled it off and uh, did that for two years. Uh, I got a big exclusive interview with Beckham after he got his red card for England when he wouldn't talk to anyone. And I'd got quite friendly with him on a, on a tour I'd been on and uh, convinced him to do a, an interview for MUTV. I said, well, it's the club channel. We're not going to stitch you up. you know." And he, and he believed me. We did a nice chat about him and Victoria and uh, and and his uh, son who'd been born then. And anyway, uh, Sky Sports saw that and then promptly offered me a presenting job on Sky Sports. So I then had a transfer down there and very quickly my career seemed to be taking off without me actually making any attempt to to make that happen. It just was one thing uh, and another. I think we've touched on some career highlights there with the Beckham story, but I'm just wondering in terms of tournaments and big sporting occasions, just to reel off a few on the list that you've been there, you've covered it. 
Well, I, I think I'm a bad omen because whenever I've gone to cover a, cover a, a club from a certain angle, particularly since I've been in the Midlands, so I go to a cup final, obviously I was there when Stoke um, went down to Wembley recently, always the team I'm following has lost. So I, I've tried, particularly, for, I mean, I've got quite a soft spot for um, for Chelsea having worked, worked for them in the early days. So I never go to their finals because I have realised that every time I go to cover a team in a final, they lose. Um, do you know what the biggest the biggest event for me sport-wise or the certain thing that moved me the most was covering the Special Olympics, which are, I know it's not the, the biggest profile thing. And for those who, who don't know about it, it's basically the Olympic Games for people with learning disabilities. And I went there quite sceptical thinking, oh, you know, what's this going to be like? And within a couple of days, I was totally sold. And you realise that actually what, what you're seeing is people who are pushing themselves every bit as much as, as, as an Olympian does. Um, obviously, within their own, uh, with their own disability, they've got to cope with. But you see the, the effort these people go to. And, and, I, and it wasn't just that I was watching it from an emotive perspective, enjoying it. I watched it from a sporting perspective because some of them are absolutely fantastic. And, and that, for me, was almost a life-changing experience. I came back, I think, a better person from uh, that trip to Athens. So, um, so actually, that's the one that sticks out for me. Finally, you're one of those few broadcasters that can turn your hand to news as well as sport. And in particular, I wanted to know how you cope with that and the, the different tone that you need and the different approach. Well, I, I just I don't really treat them much differently. Whatever you're doing, you're telling a story um, or, or, you know, you're relaying what's happened, whether it be sport or news. If if somebody's somebody's died and you're reporting that, obviously you are reflecting that story and you talk about it as the way you would to somebody when you got home. I mean, you, you don't you don't tell someone someone's died with a smile on your face. It's just natural. You just tell the stories it is, and it's the same with sport, really. I mean, you 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 most of sport is a more happy thing to report, but it's only the same as reporting a happy news story. I don't really see um, a massive difference, and I, and I think in actually broadcasters in the last ten years, say have started to realise that actually there's not a great big gap between sport and news and people do more and more now go between the two. I know Sarah Jane Mee, who I used to work with at Central, is now on Sky. She went there to do sports very quickly. You see her doing news programmes and, and she flits between the two. Um, and that does seem to happen uh, more and more. And why not? Because, you know, we, I've got an interest in, in everything, really, in news and sport. I love them both. I love covering them both. Um, I suppose anything is a good story. It doesn't matter whether it's sport or news. Brilliant. Thank you very much for joining me on The Offside Rule. It's a pleasure. Delightful to see you again. Mm. You're looking, by the way, you can't see this, but Lindsay's wearing a beautiful blue dress. And I've got her into my dressing room. And I, the door's locked. The door is locked. And I always do this as well, when, especially when it's for audio. <laughs> Thanks, Lindsay. Wear your best dress. Thanks very much. The female take on football. Thanks to everyone associated with this week's podcast, the lovely Faye White, who's won so many trophies with Arsenal ladies, she's lost count. To my roundtable contributors, Zoe Aminsky and Kate Borsay, to Steve Clamp and to producer Heather. Thanks to yourselves as well for listening. Please tell your friends if you've enjoyed it and download again next week. We'll be back. The Offside Rule We Get It is a podcast produced by Heather Davies and Lindsay Hooper. 